Um, we've had a, um, a, an incredibly robust uh, last, last few weeks. Some may say heavy, uh, some may say traumatic. We've been looking through the story of Abraham and tackling some of the hairy things that come up in the story of Abraham. And um, I just want to acknowledge Steve and everyone else who sort of talked to the series about... Um, and thank them for how honest and how robust the dialogue's been, and um, honour our congregation as well for being able to dialogue really maturely around um, quite sensitive topics and things that can be major struggles for a lot of people, and it's been um, amazing to be in the middle of it. And this, oh, hello, oh, we've got, yeah, one of them, yeah, that's good. Um, so... It has been a heavy series. It's going to get heavy today as well, forgive me, um, but that's all right because it all wraps up next week as well. I thought um, it would be good to tie up a few loose ends today from the story, which we'll read over in a minute. Um, in the meantime, however, the internet's taught us nothing. Um, if it's taught us anything, then it's that cats make everything better. So um, I'd like to present to you just as a, um, just a sort of, you know, Counter, as a counterbalance to some of the heaviness of this morning, um, a little uh, exhibition from a recent gallery opening called Kitty Junior, um, uh, my, my Inside Life. And uh, this morning, our, our, our exhibition sponsored by um, ChristianMingle.com. <laughs> Single and Christian, find God's match for you. So I expect most of you probably already got profiles there anyway, but you can browse, you can, can browse for free. And I somehow worked out um, how to get their search engine to plug into the very heart of God um, and determine exactly which person is his direct choice for you because everyone knows there's only, there is only one. So um, 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 Nikki and Jim, they're both quite pretty. I think I think that's Jim on the left, though. Um, they got married in September 2011, so that's nice, isn't it? So it, it's apparently working. So try ChristianMingle.com. Um, Kitty Junior, th- this first work um, is named Cat in Cupboard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the ne- ne- next work is named Cat in Cupboard Two. She has a um, she has an affection for swispers, which are the things you clean your ears out with. But she likes to. Um, Toss them up in the air and eat them. Um, the next one is, uh, is the classic cat and bag. Yeah. Uh, followed by e-kitty or warming the keys. Yeah. This is her at work at home. Um, she sends some flaming emails sometimes. Uh, but she's not just electronic. She also uh, likes to uh, handle the pen as well. So this is, this is my study buddy. So on Tuesdays when I study, this is my study buddy. She's sort of um, she's pointing out a few... Um, Critiques to, to some of my work there. Um, next one is binging. You know, everyone has their weaknesses. Um, in her case, Slurpee. Uh, followed by binging too. <laughs> she, um, she, she, she sometimes very shamefully eats a whole box of shapes. Uh, this one, next one is, um, is, has been named by, by Josh the Seductress. Those are, those are bedroom eyes right there. Uh, and followed by rar. Yeah. 
Yeah. This is my cat, by the way, just, just so you know. I never used to be a cat person until I discovered Kitty Jr. Um, <clears throat> the next is uh, part of the action series uh, with very popular acclaim. Um, this is Mountaintop. <laughs> which, of course, in the, you know, being true to life is followed by valleys. <laughs> and then in, in a moment of weakness, regrets. That's my backpack. <laughs> And that's Kitty Jr. using my thong as a pillow and about to pull the backpack down upon herself, which she did successfully. Um, the next, uh, next slide, second to last, is a uh, forced cuddle, uh, followed by the last work in the series, the controversial Deviant Eyes. Yeah. So, um, so a little, a little bit of light um, cat photography there, um, just to sort of balance out the heaviness of some of the series that we've been going through. Uh, we've been reading through Genesis um, 18 and 19. If you are listening to this on the podcast, it's probably the most inane. Um, in fact, if you're here, that might be the most inane thing you've heard in a long time. But, you know, for those of you who are cat lovers, um, a little bit of gold for you. All right. So we've faced a few hairy subjects uh, in the last few weeks in our series on Abraham. We've ended up um, getting um, stuck on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment and destruction, which, um, as I said before, I'm uh, really proud of our community for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of them is their ability to handle the robustness of a of a topic of a series of topics like this, these are not easy stories to face uh, or hear with our modern ears, and it takes a fair bit of uh, cautious and careful reading to do them justice. And um, I hear Steve's now promoting a brilliant new weight loss management system called um, the Nervous Sweats, and <laughs> they've been working wonders. And he has bravely faced the last couple of weeks. Um, and I also have to give credit to our community for the lack of lot puns during this time as well. Every sermon I've ever heard on lot has been mostly focused around the fact that lot can be used to say a lot. And uh, it's torture to yourself to go down that line. So well, well done for all of you. But now that we've uh, spent some time wrestling with these stories, uh, I thought it would be good to kind of bring some of these stories home and try and work out what they're saying to us, uh, how we can live in light of them, uh, what do they look like and what do they mean in light of the rest of the biblical story. We opened up this series by talking about the fact that these stories can't be held in isolation, but we need to look at the entire narrative to make sense of them. Because if we just take uh, a portion of scripture all by itself, it can be made and twisted and turned to be to be turned into all kinds of things. But if we look at it from the perspective of the whole narrative, we understand that Scripture goes somewhere. And in our case, um, we look to the Scripture points eventually to Christ. So another uh, thing that I think is worth asking is what questions do they ask of us here and now? What do these stories ask of us? We've spent the last couple of weeks on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks... Um, Pause your experience now, go and listen to the podcasts of the last couple and um, catch up with us. Welcome back. Um, But we'll attempt a wee catch up by, I'm going to paraphrase 
a short segment and then we'll get someone to read a short segment as well. If someone can find Genesis 19 for me, that feels like reading this morning, that'd be good. And in the meantime, I'm going um, to paraphrase uh, Genesis 18, verse 16 to 33. Basically what happens is uh, Abraham is hanging out and he gets a, vi- he just had a, a visit uh, that told him that from, from some angelic hosts that told him that he was going to be a father, which at 90 something uh, is a bit of a surprise, I'm sure. Then the uh, angelic hosts that are with him tell him that they are going to go off to Sodom and f- see if they've, they've heard the cries of the poor and the oppressed and um, those being victimized and abused. And they um, are going to see if um, and measure if God will enact judgment on the cities, which I'm very squeamish about these passages. I find them a huge struggle and very, very difficult. Abraham stands in the gap on behalf of Sodom and proposes that um, how can God wipe out a whole city if there's righteous people there and has a debate and a dialogue with God about it, proposing first that, you know, what if there's 50 um, righteous people there? How could you destroy a city if there's 50 righteous people there? Uh, What if there's 40 righteous people there? How could you destroy a city if there's 40 righteous people there? What if there's, you know, just 30 righteous people how could you destroy a city with when these innocent people were sort of caught up in the middle of it? And uh, God kind of agrees that he won't destroy the city if they can find 10, 10 righteous people in there. And uh, so the men go off, the angelic hosts go off to Sodom to go and investigate uh, the, the state of the city. And they arrive um, outside Lot's door. Would anyone like to read Genesis 19? It's a reasonably big section from... Oh, just from 1 to 11, we'll do it. Anyone with a reading voice? Mine's a terrible monotone. Don't make me do it. No, 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 no. Yeah. Oh, you've got it? Awesome. Yeah, you can read it. You can read. No, you're, it's you. It's always you. <laughs> it has to be you. Okay. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise early in the morning and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and he entered his house. He then made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, and all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out through the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish, and they do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Thank you. I'm going to try not to cover too much ground that we've already covered, uh, other than acknowledging that this is a deeply disturbing scenario. Um, a horrendous situation. Um, emotions run high around it. It's not easy to look at, to face, 
to wrestle with. Um, there's historically a lot of controversy around this, and we I won't make an argument for it now because it's been covered, but we've kind of put forward an argument that we we cannot believe um, and we cannot hold to the fact that, um, or the opinion that, uh, that this is a judgment against consexual, homosexual um, behaviour, but against various other um, sins, including, obviously, gang rape and a whole bunch of other stuff, um, that the state, the state of the city is um, essentially victimising um, its own population. So we land with this scenario of Lot, who <laughs> I sit in the same boat as Steve, <laughs> and I'm really glad that Steve managed not to swear about Lot. Um, I'll try and do my best as well, but I'm not a big Lot fan. Um, he has just handed over his daughters. We'll backtrack a little and go back to Abraham. Why I love Abraham um, and where I love like Abraham. There's something that Abraham does here which is revolutionary and amazing. Abraham puts himself on the line in a dialogue with God and opens up a possibility for grace. I love this about Abraham that when Abraham could have sat back, he put himself forward. He argued on behalf of the city. And on behalf of the city dwellers, Abraham did a good thing. He mediated before God on their behalf. And he, and he suggested a diversion of the common wisdom of destruction of the evildoer and proposed grace. Now, this is, a, this is an outrageous idea to the ancient mind. Um, there's something we have to be careful here as, as, as believers as we read the scriptures. We believe that scriptures are inspired. We believe that the story shows us something about God. However, we're not forced to believe that the face value representation of the God character in the story says all that there is to say about God. Um, we have to look at the story in the light of the common belief around God and how God might act at the time. And then as we sort of soak in that, look for surprises that might pop up. And I would argue that there's a surprise in the middle of the story. And the surprises as that grace is proposed. Um, are there any wine tasters here? Any expert wine people who like can tell me about their favorite wine? Wine person? Anyone? You can admit it. Oh, Mark and oh, Mark and Rod, who are so we sent the winos out with the children. Is that what we've? <laughs> is that what's happened? Is this wise? Have they got a stash out there? <laughs> My children come back so relaxed. <laughs> Mark, who looks a little like Will Ferrell, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Mark, you're a wine drinker. A wine, a wine drinker. You appreciate wine. And um, what's your favourite wine? A Cabernet Sauvignon. So he even says it. It just rolls off the tongue. Um, if you were to describe a good Cabernet Sauvignon, what 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 does, what words would you use to describe it? Balance, intensity, complexity. complexity uh huh. You you one of your favourite Cabernet Sauvignons. What are some of the the, the the flavour notes that? What do you look for in a Cabernet Cabernet Sauvignon? <laughs> no. No, you can't. I was, um, what, what, what are some of your favourite flavours in a, in a Cabernet Sauvignon? 
Kunawara and Margaret River. Uh huh. And they don't taste just like wine, I'm guessing. What notes are within those wines that you particularly look for? Mint? Herbaceousness? Excellent. That's great. Cool. That, that'll, that'll do. You've served your purpose. Thank you. Um, I am not a wine connoisseur. So to me, for the most part, wine tastes like wine. Or up until a couple of years ago when I started drinking a little bit more and drinking a bit more coffee. Um, the, the thing you get with wine tasting is one of the things that you need to do is you need to develop your palate so that you're used to the taste of wine. When you first start drinking wine, same with um, drinking anything seriously or eating anything seriously and looking to try and dissect it, is you actually have to be able to remove the common in it. Uh, I make coffee um, as, as one of my jobs, and what you have to do when you're tasting notes is you, you are looking for to get particular flavours out of particular coffee beans. All the coffee beans produce different stuff depending on how you treat them, what you do with the grind and the dose and the um, temperatures and extractions and rah, 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 all these kind of things. Um, but until you develop a palate, all you can taste is coffee. But then as you develop your palate, you begin to be able to taste the difference between coffees. So uh, one coffee, it might be like a Pacific's a really earthy and um, a little bit dirty and heaps of like really heavy base chocolate notes, baker's chocolate, like um, sometimes a little bit of spice in them, but pretty flat, low acidity, not particularly complex. Um, if you go to a Central African, like a Kenyan you know, um, or an Ethiopian, Really bold, high acidity, citrus-driven coffees, orange and um, blueberries and um, strawberries and all of these kind of flavours. And then you get over to the um, Americans; heaps of them have, are quite nut-driven. Um, so there's lots of like hazelnut and yeah, uh, <laughs> I did indeed say nut, um, <laughs> hazelnuts and peanut and um, all kinds of things. And then you know some of the geishas have got like really complex, like strawberries and cream, and um, and they're slightly lower in acidity, but they've got the sort of like real like um, fine complexity to them. But if you haven't drunk a lot of coffee before, you try and you hand over a cup of this that you're really excited about to someone, and they drink it, and it tastes like coffee. Because until you can filter the coffee out, coffee just tastes like coffee. But once you can filter the coffee out of your palate, you begin to taste the complexities and differences in them. Same with wine. Uh, if, uh, if I pick up a bottle of wine that Mark's drinking and he's saying mintiness and grapefruit and, you know, um, bold and things like this, herbaceousness, um, which I don't think actually exists. Um, if you pick up, if I was to drink that, I'd probably just still taste red wine. Because until you can actually, um, until you're so familiar with the flavors that you can block out the main bit and taste the distinctions, until you can do that, you don't appreciate what's going on the same way. One of the things that we've got in scriptures like this is an underlying worldview, the way the world works. Our worldview is far removed from the worldview of the people who are receiving this story for the first time or who passed it down in their traditions. The set of assumptions that they would bring to the story are different than the set of assumptions that we would bring. For us, we probably wouldn't choose to carry a story of sulfur raining down from the heavens massacring a city to represent our God. If we were approaching this for the first time, that that probably the concept would be so abhorrent to us. We would just have no framework to understand this from. We wouldn't look at that story and say, good, evil people got what evil people deserved. But in the ancient Near East, that was the common wisdom of the surroundings, that 
quid pro quo, that, that if you do bad things, you'll get justice for that and you'll be punished for it. And so in this story, there's kind of like an underlying foundation of that the righteous will get what the righteous deserve and the evil will get what evil people will get what evil people deserve. There's these really concrete categories around it, that there are such people as evil people and good people, and that's in all its simplicity is what they are. Whereas we would probably bring to it a much more shades of grey approach, that there is evil and goodness in all of us. Um, Walter Brueggemann, who's a one of my favorite Old Testament scholars um, proposes this in looking for anomalies in this story. He says, there's a bit of complex language in here, so um, I'll I'll reinterpret it a little myself. Um, The argument of 18 verse 16 to 32, which is the argument between God and Abraham, seeks to break open the closed, fated view of the world given in chapter 19. Um, Genesis 18 embodies a charismatic critique of the popular religious conviction, which is dominant in chapter 19. And the charisma is essentially like a a package of the gospel, that that somewhere in 18 we find the gospel. If the two chapters are taken on the same plane, then chapter 19 prevails, at least in terms of dramatic impact. But if 18 is understood as a bold and tentative theological probing, then it raises a hard theological issue that will never again be silenced by the simplicity of 19. That issue is not silenced. Uh, Sorry, that issue is is still not silenced. Is there in the gospel an alternate way of being in the world, or are we consigned to the brimstone that inevitably follows our failed, faithless action? In a study of wisdom literature, Hamad Giz has observed that Israel has has largely taken over a retribution scheme that is taught all over the ancient Near East. So basically, the people who held the story first, the Israelites, basically saw the world in, in, the, in a way that evil people will be destroyed for the evilness and the righteousness, and the righteous will be held um, safe because of their righteousness. But as the peculiar problem and persistent possibility of Israel that its fresh discernment of God provides for the intrusion of grace between indictment and punishment. Our exposition concerns that graceful wedge, and it is asserted as criticism of the quid pro quo retribution. Much is at stake theologically in this issue, for we must decide if there is good news even for Sodom. Much is at stake pastorally for countless persons are trapped in this closed structuring of reality and learn for the intrusion and yearn for the intrusion of grace. In the story, in the middle of this, um, bad people get what bad people deserve. Abraham raises this issue and this possibility and opens the door a crack and, and holds God to account for his own, or holds the God character to account for his own calculations and essentially proposes that if you're just going to bring everything down to calculations, you're not actually acting with integrity to your gracious self. I love Abraham because Abraham puts himself on the line in the story on behalf of people who probably deserve retribution and stands up and opens the door for grace. And as we follow the biblical story throughout all of its rises and falls throughout its entire arc, we land with Jesus and we land with the intrusion of the message of grace for ourselves that we don't get ultimately what we deserve, but God takes it upon himself. And so I love Abraham in this segment because Abraham um, in a society and a worldview that was just so 
open and shut case that, of course, Sodom got, gets what Sodom deserves because um, it did bad things, therefore it should, should be destroyed. Abraham proposes something so radical that grace might intervene in between judgment and punishment, which is beautiful. Abraham deserves credit for his willingness to put himself in the line. One of my issues is <laughs> I'm squeamish about the subject of judgment and the whole idea of divine wrath and retribution. And I'm particularly squeamish about the way it's been threatened in the name of God. But I also have to acknowledge my bias that in my position in life, um, I, have certain, I, I have a certain bias. I've never been raped. I've not seen the horrors of war. I've not had my humanity degraded in any way resembling the treatment of those on the underside of society in the ancient Near East. It's all well and good for me to comment on the fact that justice should be averted. But it's also true that I have no idea what it was like for the city dwellers, for those who are on the underside of, the, of that society. Um, I'm white. I'm male. I have most of my faculties. I'm comparatively rich. And I live in a society that protects people like me really well. When I read the story, I more often stand in the position of Lot than I'd like to acknowledge. One of the... <laughs> we ended up in a conversation, a few of us, after one of these um, a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about the whole idea of judgment and about why God didn't let... Just still destroyed the city... Um, even though there was maybe a couple of righteous people in the middle of it. And as we talked about it more, we sort of raised the idea that God was in conversation himself, that God was talking to Abraham. But the very scriptures that we just read talk about the, the cries of the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed rising to God, calling, calling for judgment on the city. And as we sit there and think about um, a city that is being terrorized by sexual assault, by injustice, by, um, by just grievous bodily harm, by no protection of those who are weak and ho- those who are marginalized. And if we, if we listen to the cry of their voice and we hear, um, if we hear their terror and their pain, and we, if we conceive a situation of hopelessness where there's no intervention, where nothing is going to save them, where the reign of terror will carry on and carry on. The question we kind of arrived at is, what would we have God do in that situation and that scenario? One of my issues with Abraham in this story, I love that Abraham stood up for the city, but here's my major issue with him, is Abraham failed to hear the cries of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And Abraham's advocacy for the city at no point does he challenge the fact that something needs to be done, that someone needs to intervene. God is put in the position of hearing Abraham and Abraham's cry on behalf of the city and on behalf of the perpetrators. But nowhere in Abraham's dialogue is it acknowledged that people are being molested, tortured, killed, oppressed, the, the poor are being downtrodden, that there's, there's this, this horrific sense of hopelessness over the fate of people who can do nothing about it. And as I look at my position in the world, 
have I put myself in the place probably more like Abraham and Lot. I can't help but think that too often my ears too. In reading this story, I only hear, I only try and avert judgment, but don't actually take responsibility for the fact that justice, that someone has to stand up. You end up with a scenario where Abraham, um, where Lot um, invites um, the, the angels to, to be hosted at his place, so an act of hospitality, which was really powerful in the, and, and, and important in the, um, in the ancient world. And then the men of the city gather around and try and assault them, sexually assault them. Lot hands over his daughters, and we discussed this a couple of weeks ago, and, um, and someone made the very wise comment of, we don't know what it was like. We weren't there which I have a huge amount of compassion for because I think it's easy to read a story and be emotionally distant from it. Um, it must have been a, a horrific and terrifying experience to be in the middle of. But once again, who pays the price? Lot hands over his daughters. Um, a scholar called Phyllis Tribble, who's, um wrote a book called Texts of Terror, a literary feminist um, reading of biblical narratives, says this, Lot tried to mediate between males giving each side what it wanted. No male was to be violated. All males were to be granted their wishes. Conflict among them could be solved by the sacrifice of females. The male protector, indeed the father, became procurer. There was one person that Lot could have given over. And that's himself. And that's what he failed to do. Because in Lot's eyes, with Lot's worldview... Women were chattels. They could be disposed of for the sake of protecting what was really important, which was himself and his guests. And through the gospel, we have to critique this worldview. We have to say that that's not okay, that that's horrific. We have to face the fact that we see through a worldview ourselves, that we see the world, for, for most of us, from a position of privilege, much like Lot and Abraham did. And just understand how easy it is for us to be willing to sacrifice everyone else, but not give ourselves over. In the story, we see once again an already marginalized, powerless, persecuted group, in this case women, are handed over by the powerful for the protection of the powerful. And bringing the story into our world and our situation, bringing the story and putting it towards the gospel and seeing what the gospel has to say about it, we can't ignore the texts that speak about power. And I just want to um, get a couple of people to do some reading. We need a, a wild prophet, if we, can, if we may, a wild prophet. Um, I feel like Nat might have the voice for this who's been recently possessed by Kramer. Are you happy to read for us from, from um, um, Isaiah 10 verse seven, uh, 1 verse 10? You can, you can read, I can find it, but you can read it from my Bible if you like. The page number? Come up the front. You can read it from my Bible. I've got it here. Oh, sorry, Isaiah 1, verse 10. What does that just uh, to 17. Oh, right, yeah. Use your loud voice. Oh, no. 
Listen to the Lord, you leaders. Listen to the Lord, you leaders, leaders of Israel. Listen to the Lord. Listen to the law of our God, people of Israel. You act just like the rulers and and people of Sodom and Gomorrah. I am sick of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Don't bring me any more of your burnt offerings. I don't want the fat from your rams or other animals. I don't want to see the blood from your offerings of bulls and rams and goats. Why do you keep parading through my courts with your worthless sacrifices? The incense you bring me is a stench to my nostrils. Your celebrations of the new, of the new moon and the Sabbath day and your special days for fasting, even your most pious meetings all are all sinful and they're false. And I want nothing more to do with them. I hate all your festivals and sacrifices. I can't stand in the sight of them. From now on, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look. Even though you offer many prayers, I will not even listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of your your innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Let me no longer see your evil deeds. Give up your wicked ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Fight for the rights of widows. Thank you. Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, fight for the right of widows. Matthew 25 verse 21. We're just going to, it's like a poetry slam. We're just going to slam some scripture together and then we'll bust it apart. Matthew 25 verse 21. No, it's definitely not Matthew. Let's try Mark. Good suggestion. 25% chance should be right. Look. No, look. John. Let's go back to Mark. Story of the sheep and goats. Pop quiz. Story of the sheep and goats. Ah, 31. There you go. I either write down the wrong number or the wrong words. Sorry, we're getting there. I'll tell you. Here we go. Matthew 25, verse 31. Where am I? The better question is, who am I? Good. Um, Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand side and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, and here at the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. 
Then these righteous ones will say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you in sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will tell them, I assure you, when you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you were doing it all to me. Philippians 2. Philippians is hard to find when you've got a really thin page Bible. Corinthians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Have I gone past it? Damn. Oh, yeah. Got it. Yes. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, two, Philippians 2 verse 7, 3. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, be interest, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself, even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. His own godness, his own essence and his own rights and his own privileges weren't something to be clung to, but to be given over for the sacrifice of many. This to me, in reading all of the arc of scripture, this to me is the definition of love as according to God. That love is not to hold on to itself, but to give itself over for the benefit of others. That love can be defined ultimately as sacrificial, taking joy in what it brings to others. In this story, there are voices mentioned but not highlighted of all of the powerless in the city who are victims of the powerful, the widows that go undefended, the orphans that go unparented, the weak who are attacked. For you and I, we most probably have to relate most closely to Abraham and Lot in this scenario, holders of some form of privilege and power with the ability to do something about it, to plea with God, but also to act. And bringing the gospel into this horrific story, I think, think if there's anything that we can pick up and take away from it, is that as those who hold advantage, we have a responsibility. That the gospel always points towards the marginalized, the hopeless, the powerless, and asks us and begs us to follow Christ in doing something about it. Both on macro, global scale issues like poverty, slavery, prostitution, sex slavery, but also in the minor, also in the small torments that go on in workplaces. For those of you who have been involved in environments where there's workplace bullying, where there's people being victimized and marginalized and are powerless, that as Christians we have to have a response to this. That I think the call of God on us 
is to put ourselves on the line, to take risks, to stand up. It came up a couple of weeks ago, the whole idea of giving over um, the right to retribution and allowing God to judge. And my only fear in that is that as Christians, with our right to retribution and revenge, we've also handed over the right to resistance. I think too often we think that the call is just to be meek and mild. But I think the call is to stand up boldly and bravely and loudly. Not to seek vengeance, but to resist evil and stand up against injustice. Once again, on the macro, we should be leading the way. And on the micro, in our workplaces, in our families, and our friendships, and for those of you in school, <laughs> in school, that the torment and hopelessness that gets enacted every day, that we're responsible. We're responsible to stand in the way with the strength that we have and the power that we do have to do something about that. That's what I would take from this story, that God's got a difficult job judging, that in the story it's hard to tell what we think God should do, whether he should act or not, that Abraham did a good thing opening up the possibility of grace, but that Lot fails, failed miserably by abusing and handing over once again the abused as a sacrificial lamb rather than being like Christ and handing over himself. I told you this morning was going to be heavy, which is why you got all those pictures of kittens. Um, but I just love a few reflections and comments and thoughts or questions, which I may not be able to answer on this before we close. How, how does that sit, sit with you? What jumps out? What challenges? Yeah. I just want to raise an alternative scenario here that that I um, saw last week. The possibility of it, I guess, when now we're talking about it. But um, I just wonder. Look, you can't. I, I know you can't. You can't uh, prove this from the text at all, but. I just wonder, uh, Lot was once the new man in the city and this seems to be a systemic violence. So I have to wonder whether Lot was once the uh, recipient of this violence and whether, because of his attachment to Abraham, whether it was his cry specifically that God was actually answering to. And... um, not just his cries, but and and when you read the text in the light of the possible scenario, you see I think it draws out a different story where you see that two angels arrive in Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed to his face to the ground. He said, "My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and go on your way early in the morning." No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him, entered into his house, prepared a meal for them, baking bread and without yeast, and they ate. 
and then you can see the desperation of the scenario that goes on after that. I think there's a the, this story is is victim, there's victims in every part of it. I think that's uh, important for us not to judge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. Like, uh, this is uh, that it's a possibility, but the, the bigger thing you raise is systemic violence and, and the, the cycle of of abuse. I worked in a in a workplace which. Um, which which is was completely paranoid, completely paranoid. Um, essentially, the managers of this workplace, all of them had been terrorised by their boss, um, and so whenever things began to break down, he'd stress out and he'd just he'd just have a go at people and just completely degrade them and just strip them of all dignity. And so you've got these really nice guys who are working in this workplace, and then suddenly stress had come on, and they'd just find someone. They'd find someone and and everything would just be honed in and focused on that person. And exactly the kind of violence done to them would be passed on. And then that person would never be an assistant manager, and they would pick someone in the chain. And that same feeling of panic and stress became this like diversion of, it's not my fault if I can blame someone else. And the Bible, when you read about the powers, um, read some, there's a guy called Walter Wink who does some really interesting commentary on it, um, about this, these ideas of systemic violence and the systems and the powers that oppress that are bigger than one single person or a single action, but actually flow and flow and flow and flow and flow. And the only power that can stop them is the sacrificial love of Christ and how that flows through the world. But I agree. I think we need to be really aware. I think we need to be aware as well of, of, of what we've taken on and work out a way of not passing it on. I think particularly for those who are parents and husbands and wives or girlfriends, boyfriends or, you know, friends, that some of the, some of the stuff that, we've, that we haven't healed from yet, that we guard ourselves really carefully to not act out and pass on. Yeah. Commentary on workplaces or friendships or parenting or any of those things in light of some of this? Does anything stand out or resonate or, yeah?
Yeah, yeah. It's the, just reading that text before of you know the, the sheep and goats. I, that's something that the whole division <laughs> is something I really, really struggle with. That whole premise and idea, and even just the fury it comes with. Until you study texts like this in Sodom and Gomorrah, where you imagine, like when you actually see evil outworked in really vivid, visceral, haunting ways, and you go, that has to re- evoke a response of anger. You know, like I think it now protected states. We get quite precious. If we were in a war zone, we might see things differently. Like exposure does change your stance a little. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want the microphone? That might help the recording. I know you don't, but you can have it anyway. I'm going to ask one of those heavy questions. I've never heard anyone preach on that passage and put us in the position of Sodom or Gomorrah. Would you like to comment on that? Would you like to comment on that? Uh, I was just wondering if you had actually even thought about that. So what was your response when you saw that? that that's what I would relate. You see, I, I would put Lot in with Sodom and Gomorrah um, in that he, he, he had a foot in both camps. He had the power to do something about it, but I perhaps in disagreement with the reading of Matt, I, I, I think that Lot was an active participant. He was a um, he was at the gates of the city. He made decisions about what went on. Um, there's a rabbinical tradition that says he may well have been a judge in the city, like setting order and failed to do so and actually participated with the, the acts of evil. Um, in that, I think Steve talked to it a little bit last week, <laughs> when we position ourselves on the side of Sodom and Gomorrah and as perpetrators of evil is where we would look to and go that intrusion and asking the question of grace that someone else would take on punishment on behalf of us that as victims of systematic injustice that go on and perpetrate that that we would hope for that we would hope for grace and would hope for the possibility that, that quid pro quo, that we get what we deserve kind of justice doesn't emerge, which I would think there's room for in the gospel. I, I, think, I think all of us are part Sodom and Gomorrah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I, I find it really interesting. The, the way that God has revealed grace to me is actually being confronted with the very fact that when I read Scripture, Um, I want to put myself in Abraham's place or I want to put myself in even Lot's place where I feel like I have some kind of righteousness. But what what, uh, repulses me is seeing the wickedness that can emerge in my heart that's reflective of that and the need for Christ. Um, And um, to me, I just, I want justice so, so aggressively. Um, and I think it's because I'm repulsed by 
wickedness in me. Um, and that's, uh, I just, yeah, I find it, I do find it difficult. And the fact that you're reading these stories and talking about them is, takes courage. Yeah. But I see Christ through it all because we're all in Sodom and we're all in Gomorrah. Yeah. Absolutely, and it begins to break down. I really like that thought because it begins to break down the the category of those, those black and white concrete categories of of good and evil. That the evil should be punished and the righteous will be saved. And this is what we see as we do develop further in the narrative of Scripture: the fact that we are all fallen short. I, I don't know if uh, the, the 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 Genesis story seems to very clearly subdivide into black and white into. Into, into good and bad, into um, righteous and evil. Um, the further you get along in the scripture, the more you see this complex interweaving that, that actually all of us hold the potential and the reality of all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Would, would you like to pray to this? Yeah. Cool. Thanks for... Um, enduring the, the end, I promise, the tail end of some, um, of some heavy stuff. But I think it's really important that it's stuff we face. Let's thank Shane. That was uh, outstanding again. Thank you. We're going to wrap up our series on Abraham next week. Um, I'll be doing that. And um, what I'd like to do is invite you next week to come along with maybe it's just a, a thought something that you've gained from uh, tracking through this series for the last, I think it was about four months now, we've looked at the life of Abraham from a whole range of angles. We haven't had a chance to look at Melchizedek, we haven't had a chance to look at hope or hospitality, um, um, but we could kind of keep going on. But we, we're, we're hitting Christmas time and we want to spend some time focusing in on the incarnation and what what the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ means as we lead up to Christmas. Uh, what we are going to do is in the new year, for those who have asked the question, we're going to spend uh, a few weeks looking at, um, at uh, sexuality and we're going to look at um, talk about the gay issue and we're going to present the gay issue from a number of different perspectives and allow you to make some choices and decisions on where you might want to sit with those, those issues. We'll talk about gay marriage. Um, and then we're going to start a series in February on community and how to, how to live together as the people of God and how to engage in mission as the people of God. So, uh, so next week will be our last Sunday um, looking at, at, uh, at the life of Abraham. Thanks, Shane. That was outstanding, um, as always, uh, theologically robust and, and given us plenty to think through. Let's stand, we'll pray and then we'll um, repeat the benediction that we prayed and spoke over ourselves last week. So, Father, we thank you for um, the challenge of your word and, and how your word um, causes us or asks us to be people who are sacrificial, who would uh, spend their lives uh, on behalf of the poor and of the marginalized, those who have no voice. And Father, I pray as, um, as we move from this place today that you would continue to challenge us and ask us how we as individuals and how we as a, as a community together 
can lay down our lives to serve and to be a blessing uh, to those who are around us. Now may God bless us with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths and superficial relationships so that we may live deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger and injustice, oppression and exploitation of people so that we may work for justice, freedom and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation and war so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you. Enjoy the rest of your week. If you would like to talk to Kate um, and uh, just follow up on any questions you have about Opportunity International, please um, uh, make sure you uh, chat with her. Bless you. Have a great week and um, stick around for some, um, some morning tea. Thank you.